Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and add a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful and sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner. We're back here in the studio with historian, author, educator, and activist PJ Thumb. Last week, we discussed the myths and historical trends driving national identity and nation-state identity, and we also explored identity politics. Today, we'll dive into PJ's harrowing and valiant experience uncovering and publicly challenging the narratives driving Singapore, how we as readers and citizens can research information and figure out who's telling the truth in an era of fake news, and I also want to highlight some compelling stories that the new narrative has covered in their book the first year as well as across all of their platforms so make sure if you haven't already check out last week to help lay context for today and i'm really looking forward to this second half pj thanks again for joining us thanks allison good to be back yeah so your research led you to revisit and then revise sources of information on Singapore's history that are counter to the contemporary publicly promoted narrative. And then you submitted a paper arguing for more accountability within the government, which, you know, at face value seems very understandable. But this spawned serious backlash and smear campaigns made against you and worse. And you were painted as a traitor going against national interests. That is a lot to bear. What led you to this work initially, and what did you uncover? Well, I think I have to recognize that I grew up and I have a lot of privilege, I would put it that way, being part of the majority in Singapore and growing up with an affluent background. And in recognizing that privilege, and especially being a Methodist and my faith, I actually, from a very young age, was told that I had a responsibility to the world and to my society and to the people around me to make it better. So that led me to then ask myself, well, how can I help make the world a better place and in particular my society a better place? And I was very fortunate in my experiences to figure out through my education that I'm actually good at being a historian, at reading a lot of information and synthesizing it into a compelling narrative. And I think also, you know, being a, a former national athlete, a swimmer, and my relationship to, to my country, to my flag, the kind of skills that you, you know, perseverance, courage, um, you learn as an athlete, all of that put together led me to challenge one of the most dangerous and cherished myths of our government. Singapore is ruled by uh, the People's Action Party. It's a one-party, virtually a one-party state. There's a token opposition of a few people in a, you know, 90-something, 100-member parliament. There's, you know, five, six people. And this government has been in power since 1959. And in order to first uh, stay in power and then to maintain power, they've locked up a lot of their political opponents over the years, people who were either politicians, activists, trade unionists, intellectuals, academics. And for a lot of our history, it was during the Cold War, the government uh, announced that these people were communists. But through my work, I was able to discover documents which showed that the government 
1963, the first and largest use of what they call the Internal Security Act to arrest their opponents and declare them to be communist, the government and the prime minister of the day had no evidence that any of them were communist and that not only that, in private discussions with the British representatives of the time, they knew that these people weren't communists and it was all a stitch up in order to get rid of the political opposition to smooth the way to decolonization, the Singapore's independence, its merger with to form Malaysia to protect British interests. So that's what I uncovered basically. And of course, the Prime Minister today is the son of the Prime Minister who ordered those arrests and he was very mm. unhappy with me. And especially when on the back of those discoveries, I argue that because no one who's been detained under this Internal Security Act, detention without trial, you know, how inhumane is it to arrest people and lock them up without trial? Some of them for decades. Our longest political prisoner was held 32 years without trial. Even Mandela got a trial and he was held 27 years. You know, we've had people held decades and none of them had a trial. And I pointed out that no one had ever been put on trial under the charges that had been detained under and no evidence had ever been produced for the some 2,500 people who've been detained without trial that any of them were involved in a communist conspiracy or were out to subvert the state. Hmm. So my arguments have been that the government needs to recognize this and release evidence and appoint a commission to sift through the evidence and come clean about this crime against humanity. <sighs> And they did not like that one bit. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I watched. I watched the hour and a half videos. Each of them an hour and a half. I can't believe what you went through. So first, just for yeah, um, so the six and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. For naming things, are you referring to Operation Cold Store and Operation Spectrum? Yes. Okay, great. Just in case people want to go in and, and do some digging of their own. And then the the minister you're referring to, Law and Home Affairs Minister, that's Shan Mugam, correct? Yes, Keisha Mugam. Okay, so on, on March 29th, 2018, you got Shan Mugamed, which was <laughs> satirically defined as demolishing an argument or someone completely through aggressive questioning in great detail for hours from Law and Home Affairs Minister K. Shanmugam. He questioned you about a paper you published in 2013 on Operation Cold Store, as you mentioned, and you had to prove that there was no communist conspiracy to overthrow the, the government in Singapore, and yada, 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 everyone can do that research. I want to know, did you know that the, the government was going to try and disqualify you in this way? And how do you counter someone who's disregarding the point of your submission to serve their own reputation while also under so much legal pressure and, and threat for personal security. I just, I'm amazed by you and how you have to handle and combat the misrepresentation and injustice against you. What was it like being in that room? And how do you go about dealing with someone who already has an agenda <laughs> with you? Well, I mean, thanks. Thanks. I mean, you're very kind, Alison. It, it was exhausting. I mean, to, to your, your first question, I didn't know that that was going to be the focus mm -hmm. because ostensibly that was supposed to be a parliamentary select committee hearing on the new proposed law on fake news. But instead of addressing my submission to the select committee on fake news, I was ambushed with this cross-examination about a paper I'd published five years before, uh, mm. most of which, you know, I struggled to remember because it's been, it was five years at the time and it was just one paper. 
And it was quite clear from the beginning that when he told me I was only allowed to answer yes or no, that what he was trying to do was to cross-examine me. So the minister is a litigator uh, before he became, he entered politics. And he treated me like I was in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. And he was, over the few hours, I was quite stunned at the beginning as to what he was doing because I was there ready to engage honestly, respectfully, constructively. And instead, he treated me like a criminal and him as a lawyer trying to break me down. And it was exhausting. It was frustrating. It was, in some ways, really, I don't know what the right word is, it's scary in some ways that this man, who is one of the most powerful men in the country, is taking his time to try and tear you apart but then at the same time, it's after going through the whole process and being vindicated because he could not break down any of my arguments, right? The smear campaign following that focused on my academic credentials, which hmm. showed that the six and a half hours, they couldn't find a single flaw in my argument or any <laughs> evidence to the contrary. So instead, they had to resort to attacking me and saying that my credentials were fake, that I wasn't really a fellow at Oxford, or, you know, whatever. Um, all nonsense, of course. But it's a great vindication to go through that, to know that your government has thrown its worst at you, did its best to destroy you, and you came out at the other end with all your research and your academic reputation intact, and not only that, enhanced, really. Right. I can imagine that some of this drives your goals with New Narrative to disseminate true information to mass audiences. Whenever I've spoken with you, I never hear what's in it for me. It's never self-centered. It's always about public education and others' well-being. And to me, the service is clear. I, mean, I, I recognize that that's very threatening to institutions and government setups. Who, if anyone, has been a source of support? Who came to your side? Um, and are some of those people the same people who are supporting New Narrative? I've uh, had a lot of people reach out to me, including yourself and others. You know, These expressions of support and having me on your podcast, uh, I mean, I'm really honored to be here and to tell my story. And this is, you know, great support because it, it gets the story out and um, it spreads the message about the importance of freedom of information and freedom of expression and what's going on in Singapore. But I think it, it, for if you look at Singapore and Southeast Asia, you know, a lot of people signed up uh, as members of New Narrative. And we're really grateful to them. But at the same time, there's so much fear in Singapore because it's a tiny city-state where the government has a lot of levers and there's CCTV cameras on every street corner with mm. facial identification. So they're always watching. So there's a lot of fear. But the amazing thing is that in the past two, two and a half years, I've had nothing but positive encounters. When I go out in Singapore, people recognize me. They say, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for wow. standing up for us. Thank you for bringing the truth. They all admit that, yes, we're afraid of the government, but thank you. You give us strength. You give us courage. And that that is incredibly empowering and gratifying to know that I'm making that difference. And that helps keep me going. And I also know there was a letter signed by 170 academics that was submitted to the chairman, um, you know, criticizing the hearing itself 
as an attempt to attack and destroy your credibility and research. And the fact that you're fighting for the freedom of expression and academic freedom in Singapore and these folks came to your side, it was nice to be reading through your story and to see that win and to go, okay, cool. <laughs> Glad the pals got together. The band got back together for that moment. Oh yeah, that was that was great. Although the government then tried to spin it as, look, PJ Thumb is part of an international conspiracy to destabilize oh. the government, and they splashed in the newspapers. Oh, it was yeah, pretty yeah. funny, but you know they control the media, they control the press, so they can say whatever they want, and it's hard to contradict them. Right. That's a great pivot point for us. I want to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk about information and media today and how we as the general public can better educate ourselves by using some of your tried and true tools as a researcher and historian. We'll talk about that when we come back. All right, welcome back. I want to dive right in to fake news, propaganda, government-controlled media, all of it. So information and media today are subject to a lot of skepticism and fully warranted at that because we read clickbait headlines, buzzword articles, and completely conflicting accounts of the same event. And so many people are terrified of being fooled, or they've grown straight up disinterested because nothing's reliable or concrete anymore. So as a historian and researcher, can you help us understand what your procedure is for seeking out and assessing information? Like, what's the best way for us to fact check and get the fullest picture possible? Well, I think the central thing to remember as a historian is that there is no absolute objective truth all of history is an argument. And I know as human beings, we crave certainty and security. And we want there to be one narrative or one objective truth. But really, history is made up of the perspectives of every single person who participated in whatever moment, uh, from the, those who were right there to those who were very far away. Mm -hmm. So as a historian, you ask yourself, well, what are the verifiable facts that we know we can say? So X happened at a certain time on a certain day. But then you have to ask yourself, well, what are all the different perspectives on that fact? Mm -hmm. And you try then to put that together to create a, a narrative argument that puts forward a certain argument that helps us understand the importance of that fact, that moment, that trajectory. It helps us understand the past. But at the same time, you have to be very clear that this is a narrative that is comprised of certain perspectives. And I'm including these perspectives, but not those perspectives, maybe. Mm. Or I'm weighing these perspectives more than those perspectives because, and you justify why, First, context is really important, right? The perspectives on uh, any given... We were talking about this last week about identity. How What your identity is is going to affect how you see something, mm -hmm. where you are, how much power, you know, your position in society is going to affect how you see it. That's really important. But also that a set of sources is going to be interpreted and reinterpreted over time. If you think of Roman history, the kind of source base that we have for Roman history has not actually changed that drastically in 2,000 years. Hmm. And yet every year there's a new book on Roman history as we learn new things about ourselves, about the world, and that helps us better understand how the Romans thought and acted. 
Hmm. Right? So you see, it's a constantly reinterpretation, re-arguing, reconsideration of the past that historians engage in to help us understand who we are, where we came from, and why we are where we are today. Hmm. Having that kind of dexterity and flexibility is actually a learned skill because it would be so much easier if we could just pick something and stick with it. So constantly recontextualizing is... Ooh, that's that's a really helpful yeah, framework, it is, it, it though. It is uh, very complicated, but you know it's a really important part of education, and I think it's really important that we try and teach people, not just children, but everyone, to always be very critical and to always ask questions about what you're reading. What's the context? What's the perspective? Who's saying it? Why are they saying it? Mm-hmm. And approach knowledge from an interrogative point of view rather than approach knowledge from a, well, what is the absolute truth? Let's find the truth. Who is right? Who is wrong? It's very possible for everyone to be right and everyone to disagree and everyone to be reasonable mm-hmm. over an interpretation of an event. We need to recognize that. Yeah, that's so very true. So if we were to apply this to things happening on the ground in Singapore, I wanted to start specifically with the LGBTQIA plus community. I'm a part of the community myself here in the States, and I, you know, just have a very soft spot for seeing where human rights and injustice is uh, in conflict. And so in, in Southeast Asia, articles from the first year suggest that those in opposition have recently claimed the queer community to be more dangerous and threatening than nuclear war. Yeah, that's in Indonesia, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, and they're bringing great shame to the countries. Yet historically, Southeast Asia was actually arguably relatively accepting of queer people. What changed socially and politically that it reverted. Well, I don't know if reverted is the right word, but in a word, European colonialism, you know, part of the problem is being colonized is you end up with an inferiority complex because you recognize your people were conquered by these white people from a long way away. And how do you sort what is better about their society than your society? You know, why did they conquer you? Was it because of the strength of their culture and civilization or was it because they just happened to be place with, as Jared Diamond put it, right, guns, germs, and steel, technology that is geographically scattered. And so part of that is the importation of Western norms and ideas. But another part of it is, of course, we come back to identity politics and people gain political advantage by creating in-groups and out-groups. And, you know, LGBTQIA identities are very convenient because you're a tiny minority and there's a lot of myth and ignorance. And so it's easy to manipulate and easy to use to create fear, which we talked about last week as well. And I know that from reading several of the articles and seeing things online, some of the daily realities that queer people are facing, you know, they're not allowed to serve in the military or they have to put on a facade. Um, There aren't accounts of queer history or existence in textbooks and media, except as dissenters or criminals. You know, there's an increased rate of violence against LGBTQIA plus people and suicide, unemployment, and this is happening, of course, everywhere, that 
you weaponize science as research to support conversion therapy when really there's a, a total lack of knowledge regarding gender and, and science itself. And there's a sense of being banished from their own lives. Um, but I've also loved seeing that pride continues to grow, um, that the public celebrations are you know, building and you see digital influencers and online activists spreading awareness and, and, you know, being that representation for equality. And this segues into the suppression of civilian freedom to express oneself. But this kind of oppression isn't merely to silence diversity, which is horrible in itself. It's also a strategy used to assert and solidify, like you said, colonial power and influence. Are there specific tactics being used to do this that you would want to break down that come to mind with censorship or red lines that journalists have to work around? Does anything specific come to mind? There's a great diversity in Southeast Asia of these tactics, and it depends on country by country. And it ranges from, you know, the very overt about arresting, shooting, murdering, killing people who speak different stories to a far more sophisticated form of economic control over these. So in the Philippines, for example, there's a lot of murder of journalists. You see that also in Myanmar or Vietnam. Whereas in places like Malaysia or Cambodia, actually less so Malaysia in recent years, but Cambodia, uh, also the Philippines, governments buy out the press or they force the press to sell to government allies, cronies. In Singapore, what the government did was to change the law to give them control over the press, but then to also apply the discipline of the market to the press. So all media in Singapore is consolidated under government control holding companies and only people the government approves of can own controlling shares in those companies. So it does two things. One, the government then has a lot of influence over the editorial direction indirectly. But also, if a newspaper wants to make, you know, it has a, a sharehold, shareholders who want to make profits, it's less likely that the newspaper is going to be very narrowly targeted or have a very sort of a unique voice, but it will have, because it has very conservative shareholders, then it will try and just be a lot more broad-based and work with the government. But, you know, Singapore is a bit of a unique case because, again, the island is very small. But mm. increasingly, what you see is the, the adoption of rhetoric related to either rights or um, the truth. So, laws about protecting uh, people against slander are weaponized. Laws protecting people from online harassment or cyberbullying are weaponized. Laws against mm -hmm. deliberate online falsehoods, fake news, are weaponized by those in power to attack those who try to speak truth to power or try to get a different side of the story out there. And, and this was a bit farcical in Singapore because the Ministry of Defense used the law against cyberbullying to claim that a one-man blog was cyberbullying the Ministry of Defense by publishing a story which was true, and so they couldn't deny the story, but uh, instead they tried to use cyberbullying laws to silence this one-man blog. Yeah, and, and also just speaking to online media, I know that multiple social networks can be blocked at times, and then, you know, the accounts are muted and the videos are removed. Yeah, it's worse than that. Governments employ a lot of people to then put out their points of view 
and to AstroTurf, you know, the to spin and and respond to mm. uh, government pro government stories positively while attacking those uh, n- you know stories which are negative to the government to those in power or stories which are a different point of view. I've certainly had a lot of very strange random people. Uh, attack me online mm-hmm. you know with uh, empty facebook accounts which mm-hmm. were just all formed or happened to be formed on the same day or had the same <laughs> generic photo you know or or just repeated the same kind of certain set of pro government facts right so governments also weaponize social media which works two ways and it gives us more democratic power but it also gives the government more power to then attack us individually hmm That's a great point. Yeah, double-edged sword there. And in terms of all kinds of social issues and social justice issues, you know, gender, racial, religious discrimination, injustice and targeting, that this happens everywhere. So obviously Southeast Asia um, altogether is definitely not exempt. I got to read from all of your different sources about the Rohingya genocide, the radicalization of vulnerable migrant workers to terrorist groups, um, the wage gap, and, you know, just different drivers of intolerance. And then switching to politics and power, I read an article talking about one leader claiming to run a campaign for the war on drugs, yet from the writer's standpoint, it was evident that the government was merely using this violently to achieve even more power. It just goes to show you that our own systems of power do have their own ulterior motives. And so that kind of, to me, can tie into democratic activism, the need to protect and fight for, and you are a democratic activist, what are you doing to advocate for more diverse and inclusive perspectives throughout Singapore with new narrative? And how, how can we do the same? That article on the war of drugs is very interesting because it's an example of what we were talking about last week about fear and identity and in-groups and out-groups because essentially what Duterte is, is doing is weaponizing this fear of poverty, the sort of neoliberal um, uh, normative underpinnings of economic development uh, and the virtuosity of those who are rich, right? If, if merit is wealth, then those who are rich must be better than those who are poor and that justifies acting against the poor in ways which are inhumane and likewise for drug users. So it's, a, it's both a sort of identity politics of individual worth as a person and also fear of drugs and he's weaponizing that to create this outgroup that he can act against and assert his power. Mm. And the, the thing is because he controls the definition of who is poor and a drug user, mm. you can find yourself on that list and therefore the target of these random assassinations. Wow. And so you then have an incentive to shut up and stay in line and um, obey the precedent rather than somehow finding yourself on a list of you know, uh, petty criminals or drug dealers. Wow. See? And so that's how he weaponizes this and uses this identity and fear to get his way. Mm. And full disclosure, it was my wife who wrote that article. She's a, wow. she has a PhD in politics, uh, political science on the Philippines, and she's also a democratic activist. What a powerful family. So to come to your other question, democratic activism, I think the most important thing, right, is, and what we try to do in New Narrative, is never to assume that we have the answers. If you're a democratic activist, I think the most important thing is to build platforms 
to amplify other people's voices. There are a lot of people out there who just don't have the platform. They're marginalized. They are submerged. And this is a big problem I found because some people will say, oh, well, you know, the, the, there's a certain value judgment again about being poor, about being minority, right? But studies have shown if you're born poor, it's extremely hard to escape poverty mm-hmm. it's, uh, and growing ever more so. If, we, if you want to talk about poverty, you need to go to the people who know it and who have lived it and amplify their voice so that it is accurate, it is real, it is lived and it is authentic mm-hmm. and get their voice out there. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really important to me and that's how I approach these things. Never to insert my voice, but to try and use the privilege that I have to create a platform to amplify other people's voices and treat them with respect and humility. Yeah, and it's so important to fill our governments with people with this intention. It begs the questions that you've asked earlier in your own podcast. What is the meaning and purpose of government? Who rules and for whose benefit? And to what purpose? And how can we all unpack those questions together to protect the largest number of people as possible and afford the same equal and equitable rights and freedoms. Of course, that is if if you support democracy and and want that end. And there's just so much to learn from the new narrative and what you're doing and offering. I think it's worth mentioning structurally how you've set up the new narrative so people understand where the money goes and, and how you operate with freelancers and things like that. I would love for people to understand your integrity from bottom up and top down. And then, of course, I want to hear how we can support and get involved and donate and follow up with more. So can you tell us a little bit how you set up new narrative to protect everyone so that the value can be maintained? Well, Southeast Asia is very inhospitable to independent media. My essential insight was to realize that in this globalized world, if companies can arbitrage between different tax regimes to find the place where they pay the lowest tax, well, pro-democracy movements can arbitrage between regimes to find the place which is most welcoming and which protects free speech. Mm. And so what I was able to do was to register the company in the United Kingdom and then create affiliated or or subsidiary organizations in Southeast Asian countries to let us operate there, but making it clear that new narrative is published out of the UK. Mm. Uh, The big exception in Southeast Asia is Singapore, where the government just banned us pretty much you know straight off the bat knowing who founded it they were they (laughs) didn't want to take chances so they just you know refused to allow us to register and it's really important to us to also model the progressive values that we want to promote Mm -hmm. so we are very transparent about where we get our money it's mostly uh, member subscriptions and grant funding and donations. That's that's actually all. We don't do advertising. And we also, we structured the company as what in the UK we call limited by guarantee. So there's no shares. No one can buy us, sell us. No one makes profits. No one makes money. Mm. It removes sort of the whole uh, financial incentive to, to sell out, right? Mm. And then we try and be very accountable. So we have our members and we report to them. There's an open meeting every month. We then issue transparency reports with our accounts every month. So all of this makes it very clear who we are, 
what we're doing, it makes it harder for governments to paint us as, you know, some sort of international conspiracy, <laughs> like insidious, foreign. Although that hasn't stopped the Singapore government from, from trying. They keep talking about us as foreign influencers trying to undermine Singaporean politics, which, you know, a load of nonsense. Um, and so we are able to draw upon a global community of people who want to see a better Southeast Asia and believe in the kind of platform we're building. Mm. And if you go to newnarrative.com, N-E-W-N-A-R-A-T-I-F.com and join as a member, it's a minimum of 52 US dollars a year or five US dollars a month. And you can you can give more. You can subscribe at a higher level. Uh, and we actually have about 10% of our members pay voluntarily subscribe at higher levels than the minimum just to support us because every member is treated equally. Mm. Or you can donate. Or, you know, if you have a story to tell, write in. And, um, you know, we'll, we'd love to hear all sorts of different perspectives. That's beautiful. And I just want to highlight, too, that when people work with you, they get paid within 24 hours as opposed to most freelancers, at least here in California. It takes months and months and months for work that we did forever ago to get the payment processed. I mean, that's insane. It's so immoral, right? If you if someone works, they should get mm-hmm. paid for it and should get paid for it right away. It, I, it's immoral to hold on to someone. I mean, it's like, could you imagine going to a supermarket and getting some milk and saying, I'll pay you in three months. <laughs> that would never happen anywhere else. But freelancers get exploited all the time. Preach. <laughs> feel that in a deep, deep place. <laughs> Um, well, is there anything before we wrap up here that you want people, our audience, to know and understand about either Singapore or your work? No, I, I just want to thank you for uh, having me on and, and giving me all this time and space to tell uh, my story and to talk about nationalism, national identity. I've really had a very good conversation, a really good time talking to you. And I want to thank you, Alison, because this is a great podcast, what you're doing, you know, the taking these concepts, uh, talking through with them and, um, you know, reaching out to a big audience. I think it's it's really, really good. And, you know, what we were talking about earlier, right? You're providing a platform for a lot of people to tell their stories. And this is really important. And so thank you for doing it. And thank you for having me here. Mm, thank you for so much for your time. And I know we can speak for hours, but alas, brain capacity and real life obligations. <laughs> um, so for more information on, on PJ and the new narrative, you can find all the links in the description. And stay tuned because when we come back, we're going to turn these takeaways into affirmations that you can use to explore your own national identity, government, and myths when we come back. Okay, it's time for this week's affirmations. To review some of the concepts we discussed today, history is what gets written and recorded. Historiography is the study of that historical writing, which is what PJ is doing, and historical revisionism reinterprets our historical records, examining the orthodox views on evidence, the motivations, and the decision-making processes surrounding all of these events. So let's open our eyes and minds to the ways myths have governed our lives, individually, as a society, and within our governments. I will say each of today's affirmations twice and you can repeat in the space for the third. Here we go. I will strive to uphold integrity even when it's difficult. I will strive to uphold integrity even when it's difficult. Second, 
I examine the impact of my perspective on other people's lives. I examine the impact of my perspective on other people's lives. And third, in lieu of doing a mantra that talks about action, I would love if you would take a moment and if it feels in alignment with you to consider looking up what PJ is doing at newnarrativewithanf.com and supporting with a monetary donation and or sharing the content and material. We will leave the links in the description for easy access. And as always, it's a joy for me to bring these experts and topics to you. I really appreciate you listening. If you can, also take a moment to rate and review Simplexity because I am devoted to making this a positive portal for education, growth, and meaningful conversation. I hope you learned a lot because I sure did. And uh, PJ is a huge inspiration to me. I hope he is to you too. I'll catch you next week for more Simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace.